The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Master Dogen taught, In birth there is nothing but birth, and in death there is nothing but death. Accordingly, when birth comes, face and actualize birth. And when death comes, face and actualize death. Do not avoid them. Do not desire them. This birth and death is the life of a Buddha. If you try to exclude it, you will lose the life of a Buddha. If you cling to it, trying to remain in it, you will lose the life of a Buddha, and what remains will be the mere form of a Buddha. Only when you don't avoid birth and death, or long for it, do you enter a Buddha's mind. We are studying birth and death this ongo, and birth and death is, in a sense, the essential, quintessential duality, right? We are born into this life. That's a fact and an affirmed truth of the Buddha Dharma that we come into this life. And the question is, in that, is someone born? Is a person, does a person come into being? And if so, what is this person that comes into being? And then in death, it seems as though something departs. And so all of the teachings that speak about birth and death, coming and going, and that in birth there's the birthless and death the deathless, that birth is the unborn, and then in coming no one has arrived, in going no one has departed. In birth nothing is added, in death nothing is taken away. These teachings are pointing to the essential teaching of Buddhism, of Buddha Dharma. Because all of this, right, is not about some abstract birth and death that's happening out there, but it's me, you, right? When we're concerned about birth and death, we're concerned about someone being born, someone dying. And there are other kinds of birth and death. What is a spiritual birth or spiritual death? What is it to be born into your original face? to be born to your self-nature? What is it to die to the illusion of the self? To be born into self-nature is to die, is to no longer create, to no longer produce, to no longer be deceived by our false views and attachments. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about this through the koan of Deshan. Deshan was a ninth-century John Master. And it's, he's kind of an interesting person because there are a number of koans in the collections that sort of show his development. So th this koan that I'll draw on today is his awakening, his, in a sense, spiritual birth and death. And then there's a koan following this that, or following this event in his life, where you see his spiritual arrogance 
So he's had an enlightenment experience, and now he's, he's got a lot of Zen. Right? Um, and then there's, an, there's another koan that is very much at the end of his life, where he's very ripe and mature, and how that shows up. It's quite interesting. He began his career as a Buddhist monastic and priest, and he lived in the northern part of China. This is how the story is, is given to us. And he, he was a, kind of a scholar monk. His specialty was the Diamond Sutra, which is an, a more extended version of the sutra that we chanted this morning, the Heart Sutra, which is part of a whole family of teachings that is considered one of the most sort of profound bodies of religious teachings in the religious worlds and um, the Diamond Sutra. And so he was kind of an expert on that. And he heard that in the southern part of China, there was this teaching put forth by Bodhidharma that uh, Chan, Zen, is a special transmission outside the scriptures with no reliance on words and letters, a direct point to, to the human mind and the realization of enlightenment. And he took offense at this because he was a person of sutras, dedicated his life to it, knew quite a bit about them, and saw this as a rejection of the Buddha's teachings. And so he, the story is he set out to go down and like set things right. And that's where the koan picks up, that he, as he came into that part of the country, he encountered an old shopwoman who was selling cakes. And he asked to buy one. And the name of the cakes <clears throat> means, um, one translator translated them to mean um, uh, mine kindle bun. Um, another translation is to, to light up. So that was what they were called, to light up or to kindle the mind. And so he asked if he could purchase one, and she said, well, what are all those books and stuff that you have carrying with you? And he said, well, they're all my commentaries on this Diamond Sutra. And she said, oh, you're an expert on the Diamond Sutra. He said, yes, I am. And she said, well, can I ask you a question? In one account, it says, I want to ask you a question about this. If you can answer correctly, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. If you can't answer, answer correctly, I won't serve you at all. So he says, of course, ask me anything you want. And so she said, in that sutra it says, and again this is from a certain translation, um, the mind done and gone cannot be grasped. The mind now, a glimmer, cannot be grasped. And the mind yet to come cannot be grasped. With which mind will you kindle and set ablaze? What mind will you kindle and set ablaze? Playing off the, the name of the cake. Another way of saying this is the past mind cannot be grasped, present mind cannot be grasped, future mind cannot be grasped. And at that, it says he stood there like a puppet with his mouth open. He couldn't answer. And it says even so, he was too proud to find death in an old shop woman's words. And so he asked her, is there anyone who teaches Chan around here? <laughs> Not realizing he had just encountered someone who was teaching Chan. 
And so he went on, and she referred him to this teacher nearby named Lung Tan, Master Lung Tan. So he went and began to study with Lung Tan. And Lung Tan was, uh, there's not a lot that's known about him, but when he, he studied with Master Dao Wu, who was another very highly regarded teacher, and he began to study with him and served him for quite a, quite a while. And one day he said, this is um, Lung Tan talking to his teacher, says, since I've come here, you've never taught me about the essential nature of mind. And Dao Wu says, since you've come here, I've never stopped giving you instruction about the essential mind. And Lung Tan said, where have you pointed it out? And Dao Wu said, when you bring tea to me, I receive it for you. When you bring food to me, I receive it for you. When you do prostrations before me, I bow my head. Where have I not given instruction about your essential mind? And Long Tan bowed his head and thought about this for a long time. Dawu said, look at it directly. If you try to think about it, you'll miss it. And upon hearing those words, Long Tan came to some realization. And then Long Tan said, how do I uphold this? And Dawu said, live in an unfettered manner in accord with circumstances. Give yourself over to everyday mind, for there's nothing sacred to be realized outside of this. And this is another example of how the, you know, the literature tends to, I think, condense everything, right? As though everything is happening in this one moment. And so you have to imagine that this is happening over some extended period of time where Lung Tan is training with him and serving him, and then they have this conversation, and maybe he comes to realization in that moment, and then does he immediately ask, how do I uphold it, as though he has completed something? And then his teacher responds to him as though he has completed something. I imagine this actually happened over some further training. And so when Deshan went to study with Lung Tan, and remember, again, in the context of the story in the koan, which is important for the student who is working with this, you know, Deshan came with a lot of, a lot of a belly full of Zen, as it sometimes, or a belly full of spirituality. Um, you know, sometimes people come here and are just beginning, you know, know very little about meditation and Buddhism, and I'll hear them downstairs expounding the Dharma, right? And that's why sometimes we'll give residents instructions, you know, because folks coming in, they don't know who anybody is. And sometimes, sometimes they sit down and start having very, you know, asking genuine questions. And so we say, you know, just respond to the question if it's asked. You know, don't gather a crowd, you know, to, to, to start teaching. And just respond from your own experience. And that's the most important thing. Speak from your own experience. Right? Not just what you've read or heard. And that keeps everybody very honest. It keeps everybody very grounded. And that's important, right? Because we're groomed, in a sense, in our culture to, to become an expert, right? To know things. And there's a satisfaction in knowing things. There can be a satisfaction in people thinking that you know things, right? And so it becomes very egoistic. And so those simple rules help us to sort of maintain our integrity. And it also gives us permission to say, you know, I don't know. It's an excellent question. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm here to, I'm studying that. I want to know. I want to find out. 
And in that way, not only do we affirm our own student mind, our own beginner's mind, but we encourage others to have that. Oh, it's okay not to know. Yeah, it's okay not to know. <laughs> but that's not where Dushan is at. Right? So he comes down, he's, he's got a, an investment. And he starts studying with Lungtan. And then it said one night that when they were speaking, they were speaking late into the night. He went to the abbot's quarters. Maybe this is the early stages of Doksan. And uh, when, when uh, Dogen went to China and studied with Chu Ching, Chu Ching said, you can come to my quarters at any time, day or night, which is quite an invitation. Clearly, he saw something in this young Japanese monk who traveled all this way to China in Dogen that he would extend such an invitation, make himself available in that way. And so Longtan was speaking, or, or um, Deshan was speaking to Longtan late into the night, and at, at one point, Longtan said, it's late, you better go. And so Deshan stepped outside, and it was pitch black. And so he stepped back in and said, it's dark outside, I can't see. So Longtan lit a paper candle and handed it to him. And the moment Deshan took it, he blew it out. Longtan blew it out. And at that moment, Deshan came to some realization. At that moment, he was born in deathlessness. He had had an intellectual understanding of Dharma. He had a good understanding. He could talk to you until the sun goes down about the self, about Dharma, about emptiness, about enlightenment, about liberation. But what he was reacting to in Bodhidharma's teaching about being outside scriptures, not relying on words, is that as powerful as words are, words are powerful within their domain. They function within a certain domain, the, the domain of language and syntax, the language of ideas and concepts, the language of, of duality, right? Because language talks about things. It describes things. It names things. That's its domain. And in that domain, it's extremely powerful. Right? When we try and bring it into or use it to illuminate or open up areas that is, are not its domain, it will seem to still function, but it's not. And that's where we get confused and attached. And so this incessant teaching over and over again about using language to say, you know, it's like having a guide that takes you out into the woods and says, there's a certain point at which you can't trust me anymore. Right? There's a certain point at which I'm going to have to leave you here in the woods alone because I can't go further than this. This is as far as I go. When we used to take the wilderness trips up to the Adirondack, Adirondacks, which we did for many years, Dadaroshi, who was our guide, would often say, um, uh, you know, follow your guide, but don't trust them completely. In other words, take responsibility for yourself. You, we should each know where we are on the map, where we're going, right? In other words, be, develop a self-reliance at the same time that we're working together and trusting each other. And so that's why we sit, 
And that's why it's difficult, because the mind keeps reaching back for ideas and beliefs and concepts, because they're always there, right? You, you've always got one. That store never closes. <laughs> and they seem to be free, right? You get them for no cost until we begin to see, oh, actually, nothing is free. Right? What is the cost of this? And, and, and what we're trying to do in Zazen, in, in one sense, is cultivate a trust in your non-thinking mind that there is an aspect of our consciousness which is already present, fully functioning, alive and bright, that in a certain sense works in another domain. But that's just a fa- another sort of false way of speaking, because these are not divided. And so we keep letting go of the thoughts, letting go of the ideas, letting go of the beliefs, and just trying to meet things directly, right? As, as um, meet things directly, <clears throat> so that we cultivate that faith and that active thinking mind begins to relax. An attachment to the self it is the attachment to having life, to being alive, to being this person, having this body. All of the ways we identify ourselves and others. And in death, those are all the things we, we have to give up. Right? We don't like that. There's so much to gain and there's so much to lose when we see directly that there is, that things are not as they seem, as the Buddha said. Nor are they otherwise, the Buddha said. Nor are they otherwise because here we are. We are alive. We have this life. Take care of it. Live well. But they are not as they seem because there is no intrinsic self. We have not gained life. We will not lose life. There is no person that can be identified that has an essence that continues permanently from moment to moment, that defines us. I mean, isn't that the basis? Is constantly defining. You know, it's like domesticating reality, putting fences around things so that they're more manageable. And we can know, you know, what, what belongs to who. When we realize that all of that are constructions, there is no intrinsic self. As Dogen says, in birth there is only this. In birth there is nothing but birth. In death there is nothing but death. In walking there is only walking. There is nothing else. In one moment of awareness there is only that one moment of awareness. There is nothing else. That's the reality. And so he says... When birth comes, just face and actualize it. When death comes, face and actualize it. When you open your mouth to chant the sutra, just face and actualize that. When you experience something uncomfortable within your sitting, just face and actualize that. He said, do not avoid. Do not desire it. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, when love and hate are absent, are free, are liberated. The way is clear and undisguised. 
And what we see is that when the self comes into being, and everything that I identify as self, everything I don't identify as self also comes into being. Everything that I am and everything that I am not. And the boundary has been drawn. How else can we create such divisions? Can we, can we build up into science and education and politics and economies rationales for how people have absolute differences based on mentally constructed ideas of race and gender and faith, class, and then create very strict rules about those attributes and absolutize them, right? Because that's what the self is, is a sense of an absolute something, something that exists in and of itself, that has qualities in and of itself, that are a sense inviolate. They don't change. They're permanent. They're, they are who you are, defined. So what's to be done? When you find yourself in a box that has no opening, has no doorway, how can there but be pain and suffering? How can there but be conflict and aggression? How can there but be the advantaged and the disadvantaged, the included and the excluded? It's inevitable. And it's our penchant for that, our passion for that, that is both perennial and so in a way mind-boggling, you know, when we see things clearly. When the self exists, everything that is not the self exists. Desires proliferate. Whatever we accumulate has to be protected. Whoever is included is included, but it's all provisional, right? I spoke about this the other day. So whoever we include is all provisional. It can change in a moment. Who you love today, you hate tomorrow. Who you hate today, tomorrow, you invite them to a party. It's all so precarious. There's a story of a nun who came to Master Lungtan and said, how can I become a monk? Now this is based in a teaching, a false teaching, a destructive teaching that found its way into Buddha Dharma after the Buddha died, because the Buddha was unequivocal about the, the equality, the sameness of, of all genders, men and women, in terms of their capacity to, to practice and realize enlightenment. In fact, in the very early part of his teaching, he had a conversation with Mara, where Mara was trying to get him to basically give it up, die, like give up his life. And the Buddha said, I'm not going to do that until we have established the fourfold Sangha, which he defined as in terms of male and female. Monk, nun, lay, male and female. Until there were those four aspects of the Sangha, his mission was not completed. So I was just reading an author who wrote a book, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but she wrote a book, I think it's called The Woman Who Raised the Buddha. 
And she talks about how when, the, when Mahapajapati came to the Buddha asking to be ordained with a whole bunch of other women, and the Buddha said no, she said that's very curious because he had already decided at the very beginning of his career that there were going to be ordained women. That was his vision. And so she sort of, and I'd never even thought about that. So he brings, she brings up that question, like, well, so what was going on? Did he know that that was inevitably was going to need to happen? And it was just like he didn't quite know how it was going to happen or when, because it was also revolutionary. That had never occurred in India. There were all kinds of implications when that was to happen. But it was such an interesting question. And it sort of opened up that whole thing from thinking, you know, the Buddha really missed that chance by saying no, to like, wait a minute, was there something else going on where he actually knew and needed for that to happen? But for some reason, at that moment when the opportunity arose, he initially... So, but after the Buddha died and he was no longer there to... He was no longer there that more conservative elements, more sexist, misogynistic elements found their way into the teachings. And scholars seem pretty in, much in agreement that they came in after the Buddha's life because they're so inconsistent, they're so contradictory to what the Buddha taught on many occasions. And that makes me think that those elements were almost certainly there when the Buddha was teaching, right? It's sort of like you change policy, but that doesn't change people's minds overnight. That's a slower process. And so there was one of these false, very destructive teachings that, that um, women could not become Buddhas, could not become fully enlightened, right? Because they were in a female form, which were somehow inferior. And so this nun is talking to, asking this question of, of Lungtan, how can I become a monk? And Lungtan says, how long have you been a nun? Look at what he does where her attention is going, and what does he do? What is, where is he directing her attention? And she says, will there be a time when I can become a monk or not? Again, the direction of her question, which makes sense given what she has been taught and has internalized. And Lungtan responds, where are you right now? See what he does. Where are you right now? And she says, I have a nun's body. Don't you recognize this? And then Lungtan says, who knows you? Who knows you? When we seek outside, when we doubt ourselves, when we feel insufficient, that doesn't just happen. You know, is any baby born into this life as an infant, you know, feeling like somehow they're not, they're not up to snuff, right? We learn these things. We are taught these things. And as young creatures, we are, as every creature's job is, the job is to learn what we're being taught because those are the things that we're, we're supposedly need to survive. So of course we're going to internalize that. And so that question, who knows you? How can I become a monk? How long have you been a nun? You've already arrived. Will there be a time when I can become a monk? Where are you right now? You've already arrived. 
you are in that very place, in that very form that is needed, that is complete, that is entirely sufficient. He's not, he doesn't have a debate with her. He doesn't try and have a logical discussion, although that could be valuable too. He's trying to bring her directly in. But I have a nun's body. Don't you recognize this? Recognize this. Who knows you? What is this self? Who knows you? Who are you? Deshaun knew who he was. He was an expert on the Diamond Sutra, scholar. He was righteous, indignant. He was going to protect the Dharma. Who exactly was he trying to convince? You're born into this life and identities are assigned. Gender, race, class, faith, sexuality. Are those true or false? Are they right or wrong? Real or unreal? Buddhism really asks the question because those questions are, are for us to clearly resolve and see what is true and what is not true. And then Buddhism asks, Buddhism asks the question, if we're going to construct something like gender, like a monastery, like students, like having ordained, if we're going to create those things, because that's how they get here, right? They don't just happen. If we're going to do that, let's do that because it's skillful. If you're going to have a dream, have a good dream. If you're dreaming, use that dream to dream yourself awake. It's said that when Deshaun, in that moment of the candle being blown out, and that's the moment the koan that the student has to take up, what did he realize? Before that, the student has to deal with the shop woman's question. Past mind, present mind, future mind can't be grasped. With which mind, which mind are you going to light up? With which mind do you sit Zazen? With which mind are you angry right now? Who knows you? It's like Lungtan saying, turning the light around, redirecting it back to the source, to the one who knows, to the one who needs to know. We're the ones who need to know. So in that moment of the blowing out, complete darkness, it said he was completely defeated. Defeated. And this is how Zen uses language, ordinary language, to blow something up. Right? To expand, to explode our ideas about what is and what isn't. To take something that has a clear definition and show it's not fixed. And when we realize that, because we enter into that, then we realize, oh, I'm not fixed. And so then we see when we are fixing ourselves, when we are fixing others, when we are in the midst of people trying to fix each other, that that's all a dream, a bad dream, not a skillful dream. And dreaming, we can wake up. Right? No dream lasts forever. It dreams for as long as you're sleeping. It dreams, it continues for as long as you are dreaming that dream. Before you were dreaming it, where was it? Was it in your dream box, in your dream closet? 
in your dream inventory waiting to be called forth? When it passes, where does it go? Back to the closet till it's called up again. Ask your dream that. Who knows you? And you'll find that you're talking to your intimate self. He was completely defeated. These words are not ordinary words. This defeat is not an ordinary defeat. What is it when everything drops away? So in Zazen, moment by moment, as something arises, that one awareness. In birth, there is nothing but birth. In this moment, there is nothing but this. As Dogen says, don't grasp at it. Right? Don't avoid it. That's exactly what we practice. Don't deny it. Don't negate it. Don't, don't suppress it. But don't cling to it. And when we do that, you're in that true place. In the only place that actually is. He says, if you try to exclude it in that moment, you will lose the life of a Buddha. We lose the life of our enlightened nature. We lose, become distant from. Which is why dukkha is painful. It's why when we turn against ourselves, as the precepts point to, when we act against our basic nature, it's painful. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That when we are dishonest, Right? or greedy, malicious, envious, proud, that if we really pay attention, if we have developed enough mindfulness, if we've developed enough stability and, and sharpness and aliveness of our mind, and have calmed the body enough, because when that's not hasn't happened, we don't feel the, the more subtle aspects of our suffering. And those stronger emotions override, seem to override. And so it seems like we get away with it. <laughs> but as that changes through meditation, what we realize is, oh, that hurts. It's actually painful, which is a great motivator right? to not continue in that way. Because this self, our views, our attachments, our boxes, our categories, our definitions, have been so deeply planted. You know, it's like the more we cling to something, the more frantic we become. I mean, think about just the state of things in our world. And the, the more extreme, the extremities in which certain people and groups of people are functioning on all sides that the more tenacious the grass, the more dogmatic the view, the more panicky it becomes, the more anxious, the more volatile. There's a reason for that, right? It becomes more and more unstable. In the same way that when we, just within ourselves, become more clingy, more grasping, we become less stable. It's, the, like, it's like our system is, is feeding back the evidence of that disharmony, of that disruption, of that lack of contact and accord. So because that's so deep, 
and so familiar, and we cling to it so tightly, it's hard to release. It's hard to release. It's hard to let go. And so sometimes it requires events in our life that shock us, startle us. That's what a lot of the teachings are trying to do. Startle us into attention, into wait. What? Sometimes it's tragedies, collapses in our life, things not working out the way we planned, betrayals, disappointments, the things we generally try to avoid. And for reason, because they're painful. But sometimes it's those very things that show us it's not fixed, it's not bound. I am not in control. I cannot predict. Nothing lasts. What can I rely on? What can I rely on? What do I turn to? And so the Buddha said, take refuge in Buddha. Take refuge in your Buddha nature. Longtan says, who are you? Who knows you? What he's really saying is know yourself. Not through a, 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 an epic philosophical treatise, but directly. That's why Longtan said, or Dawu said to Longtan, when Longtan said, how do I uphold this? Dawu said, live in an unfettered manner. Be simple in body and mind. Be straightforward. Accord with your circumstances. Which means we have to be attentive. What are my circumstances? Do I see? Do I know? Am I paying attention? Am I present? Give yourself over to everyday mind. Because there is nothing sacred to be realized anywhere else. I mean, think about it. Has anyone ever let go before? Have you ever let go after? Has anyone ever come to realize into realization or had an insight in any other moment than now? That's just another way of saying everything is here. To practice, to study, to know this one. And in knowing this one, lo and behold, we begin to know each other. Because there's just one mind. And we are the same species. We share a fair amount in common. And not just with our species. I mean, just think about all of the creatures of the world, just to take a few of them, who have mouths. They eat things, right? They have eyes, they see things. They have digits, arms and legs. How much we share, and yet how much we focus on and concentrate and make so much, and make so much falsely about the differences, which is really just the magnificence. There is no liberation without the realization of emptiness, the ultimate reality, without knowing ourself. And for that, we have to go through and let go of all of the constructions, the definitions. But there is no approach to that, to your self-nature, to your ultimate nature, without relying upon the conventional words, phrases, teachings, 
places of practice, azafu, an altar. The ultimate, the teachings say, the absolute reality is what the conventional really is. It's real nature. The conventional, the relative world, is the way that absolute reality shows up. They're one thing. So how do we uphold this? Live in an unfettered manner. Give yourself over to everyday mind, which means begin by don't know what that is. Don't know what that is. Just sit down and turn your attention inward. Turn the light around. It's there. Master Dogen said, there is a simple way to become a Buddha. Listening. (laughs) There's a simple way to become a Buddha. (laughs) When you refrain from unwholesome actions, are not attached to birth and death, and are compassionate towards all sentient beings, respectful to seniors, kind to juniors, not excluding or desiring anything, with no thoughts or worries, now you are a Buddha. Seek nothing else. Simple. And because it is right here, but it's hard to see, because it's so simple, that you say, because it's so very close, it's hard to see. And so then we practice. And so I hope those of you who are here for the weekend or here for the morning who are exploring this, this path, I hope this has been helpful to you, this introductory retreat. And I hope in whatever direction you take, you take a direction. And give your energies and your heart to that which is worthy. If you're going to take up a path, make it be worthy. Make sure it's worthy of your faith, of your attention, that it's a true path, in other words. That will help you, and it will help all of us. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.